Our call to confession this morning comes from Psalm 130. Hear the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I want us to be encouraged this morning to come before our God in confession. I want us to be encouraged because our God is gracious. I want us to be encouraged because he knows far better than we do the depths of our own depravity, and yet he calls us to himself still. I want us to be encouraged this morning because we are, in fact, far more sinful than we would like to imagine, and yet we are far more loved than we could ever know. I want us to be encouraged this morning, for if our God were to mark iniquities, none of us could stand before him, but with our God is abundant forgiveness. I want us to be encouraged this morning because with our God is plentiful redemption and steadfast love. I want us to be encouraged this morning because our God does, he- does indeed hear our cries for mercy and he responds with abundant grace and salvation. And so be encouraged this morning to come before our God in confession. This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 29. So I want to invite you to turn there. And we're looking at the first 30 verses of Genesis 29. Continue to walk through this kind of family story here of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And um, things just keep getting more and more exciting as we go further and further into this story. So let's, uh, let's read Genesis 29 together. It says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep laying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. And he said, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks gather together, and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with him, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, you shouldn't, you should, I'm sorry, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? 
Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. (coughs) Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for the time my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we come before you this morning and we are eager to hear you speak, Lord. And even as you have spoken through your word, uh, give us wisdom, give us ears to hear, Lord, give us minds to understand, give us hearts that are changed and transformed by your truth, Lord, that we might live lives that glorify and honor you, that, that we might walk in a way that honors the confession that comes from our mouth. And so, Lord, be glorified now in the preaching of your word. Um, guard my mouth, Father, that I might only say that which is edifying for us, your people, that we might be encouraged, strengthened, and challenged by your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So as we've gone through uh, this narrative of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it can feel, at least to me at times, like we're kind of moving in and out of an 80s soap opera. Now, I wasn't one for watching many soap operas, but they seem to be driven by drama after drama after drama after drama. And this story is a little bit like that. We have encountered multiple points where it's just drama on top of drama on top of drama. And today, uh, Genesis 29 certainly does not disappoint. It is chock full of some juicy, wonderful drama. And our passage, as we look at this morning, chapter 29, splits easily for us into two sections. Uh, The first section records Jacob's journey to uh, the east to meet with his family. And and the second and and honestly more exciting part deals with Jacob's marriage to his two wives, Rachel and Leah. And as we look at this passage this morning, I I think one thing, uh, we are are kind of um, instructed and how to read earlier parts of the narrative that we've walked through already. Uh, As we kind of move through this narrative, especially as we've encountered Jacob and Esau, the scriptures haven't necessarily commented directly on uh, the actions of Jacob within this narrative. But we do get moments like this where I think this becomes a, a commentary of sorts on Jacob's actions so that we can read them with more clarity. And so not only do we get the opportunity to read with more clarity, but we are also reminded as we look at this passage of God's justice. Uh, of his divine justice at work in creation, which of course points our minds forward to consider the greatness of Christ Jesus and what God has accomplished through him in satisfying eternally his justice against sin. So let's walk through this passage together this morning. There are, the passage really starts kind of 
on a high note, right? So coming off of this vision in the wilderness where Jacob sees angels ascending and descending a ladder and and hears God speak over him the Abrahamic promises, he then gets up and continues on his journey to Padan Aram. As we look at verse 1, it it kind of records this in, in sort of pedestrian language. Right, it says, then Jacob went on his journey. Uh, a more literal translation of that phrase there would be that Jacob picked up his feet. Uh, he picked up his feet to go on his journey. And maybe a more colloquial way to understand that is Jacob had a spring in his step. Uh, one commentator noting this says that he resumed his way the next morning with a light heart and an, an elastic step. Right, so so he's, he's been cast out of his home. He's sleeping in the wilderness as, as uh, Jeff preached last week. He's got a, a rock for his pillow, but then he has this, this, this vision, right? This marvelous vision. And so he, he gets up from that and just kind of is, is, is invigorated for his journey forward. And, and so he, he gets up, has a spring in his step, and then he is clearly, right, clearly guided by the hand of God as he moves into the country of the east uh, as God takes him to the very place that he needs to be to make contact with the very family he is looking for. So as we look at verses 4 through 8 that kind of record this interaction of Jacob with the shepherds at the well, uh, we shouldn't look at this as kind of representing blind luck, but rather as God sovereignly leading Jacob to the very well where he needs to be. Right? It's not like he just kind of found a well and by chance found people who know, uh, who know um, Laban, the son of Nahor. No, God led him to this place. And, and really within the context of Genesis, <coughs> this brings to mind the story of Abraham's servant's journey as well. Right? If you remember back in Genesis 24, Abraham takes his oldest servant and he sends him out on a journey to go find a wife for his son Isaac. And as he's going to look for a wife for Isaac, he's led to a well where he meets a woman who will become Isaac's wife. And here Jacob is led to a well where he meets a woman who will ultimately, ultimately, after some really exciting th- uh, events, become his wife. And so as we read this in Genesis 29, I don't think we're wrong in hearing the words of Abraham's servant kind of spoken over this situation as well. In Genesis 24, Abraham's servant says, uh, "The Lord, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So the same thing could be said of Jacob. God leads him to where he's supposed to be to meet who he's supposed to meet when he is supposed to meet them. Right? We see this not only in this kind of chance meeting, but we see that it's, it's at the appropriate time for them to meet as well. Because if we look at Jacob's interaction with these shepherds here, which is actually... Uh, kind of humorous. He seems far more interested in having conversation than than they necessarily do. Uh, Jacob looks to them and he says in in verse 7, behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together, water the sheep and go. So Jacob's looking at this situation, essentially saying, you guys are wasting time here, right? It's, It's high day. The sheep shouldn't be gathered together. They should be watered and taken back out. But they say, no, we, we wait, right, for all the sheep to come together because you got this large stone that's covering most likely a cistern. And so we wait for all the sheep to be gathered together so that we have to move this stone multiple times. We want to move it once, water all the sheep, put the stone back, and then send all the sheep out. So not only does Jacob come to the right well to meet the right people, he comes at the right time. He shows up at the right time while they're still waiting for all the sheep to be gathered. Of course, the last sheep to be gathered in 
are the sheep of Laban, his kinsmen, who are being led by Rachel, his daughter, who is a shepherdess. And so Jacob and Rachel meet, and Jacob's response is to kiss Rachel and to weep aloud in verse 11. And then he tells Rachel who he is, but he doesn't tell Rachel why he's come. It's interesting oftentimes the details that are mentioned and the details that are left out. So Rachel meet, or Jacob meets Rachel, says who he is, but doesn't say why he's traveling. And then she runs back and gets her father Laban, tells her who she's met. Laban runs back and meets this young nephew who's made a journey of about 400 miles to come visit him. Now, as we look at their interaction, uh, beginning in verse 13, it says, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Now again, the scriptures are wonderfully ambiguous here because we don't necessarily know what all these things are. We don't know if Jacob told Laban the whole entire story, beginning back with his deception of his brother over a birthright, his deception over his father for the blessing, and being cast out because his brother desired to kill him. We don't know if he edited the story down a little bit. We don't know if he, he, he full out lied. We don't know exactly what he said. Now, we know exactly what happened within the context of the narrative, but we don't know how, how much information Jacob gave to Laban. What I think we can be certain of is that Laban has an idea of the pickle that his nephew is in and the fact that it has resulted in Jacob being in a compromised position. And it's a position which Laban appears all too ready to take advantage of. In fact, as we go through this narrative, we find that Laban is not necessarily such a stand-up gent. Now, this first section of the narrative here closes with a summary statement in verse 14 where it says he stayed with him about a month. As we move into verse 15, we find that that, uh, Jacob was not idle that whole entire month, but in fact had been serving in the household of Laban. And so Laban looks to him in verse 15, and he says, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, we might be tempted to read Laban's response here or his question to his nephew here as, uh, some sort of generous statement, right? Listen, you're, you're working in my house, so you shouldn't do this for free. What do you want from me? But I don't think, um, I don't think Laban is altruistic here in his motives. Uh, we find again that Laban, Laban is not a great guy. He's not a, he's not a really good guy. And so this isn't so much generosity as much as it is opportunity. He, he knows, I think he knows at this point clearly that Jacob doesn't have much options. Right? Jacob's been cast out from his home. Uh, as far as we know, he's cast out with nothing. And, and Laban kind of knows that he's got him right where he wants him. And so he's saying to him, how, how should I pay you for, in turn for you serving within my household? Uh, not necessarily how one approaches family, right? How should I pay you for doing work within my household? Before Jacob can give his answer, however, to Laban, we are given a, a little bit of information in verses 16 and 17. And the information we're given in 16 and 17 not only informs uh, Jacob's answer, uh, but it also, it also gives uh, some context uh, to Laban's uh, act of deceit that is about to come up. So if we look at verse 16 and, seven, 16 and 17, it says, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. So we find out that Rachel is not the only daughter. In fact, she's the younger daughter, and Laban has another daughter, an older daughter named Leah. 
Um, now, I don't know how much you are for names and their meaning. Um, I, we don't often think about that sometimes at, at our home, but then we'll, we'll name people and we'll find out what it, it means. Now, um, Asher is, is named Asher uh, because that means happy and blessed. And we'll find that in just a few moments, well, next week as we get into the birth of children. I named Calvin, Calvin, uh, because I, I like John Calvin. He seemed like a really cool guy. So every once in a while, my boys will kind of go at each other in the car because Asher will get all high and mighty about the fact that his name means blessed. And according to the internet searches we've done so far, Calvin means bald. Uh, so Calvin's not too jazzed that his name means bald and his brother means happy and blessed. Well, Rachel, Rachel most likely means you. Uh, not you, but you, as in a, a female sheep, whereas Leah, uh, most, most commentators think Leah probably means either cow or wild ox. Uh, not necessarily a, a really delightful name to pass on to your oldest daughter. And unfortunately, it's not just the fact that her name means cow or wild ox. It, it, it's kind of amplified by what we read in verse 17, where in verse 17 it says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, concerning Leah's eyes, a lot has been written about that. What exactly does it mean to say that Leah's eyes were weak? Some commentators say it refers to the color of her eyes, that she had blue eyes or lighter eyes, which was seen kind of as a deformity in ancient Near East, or, or that her eyes didn't really have a sparkle to them. They had no pizzazz, right? She kind of had these kind of dull, maybe cow-like or wild ox-like eyes. I don't know if you've stared in the eyes of a wild ox before. There's not a ton of sparkle in those eyes. Uh, what I think is the case is I think that what's really here is an idiom that we are not necessarily completely aware of or don't really have a context to that is to be understood in contrast to what it says about Rachel. Leah had eyes that were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And literally what I, I think it's saying, and, and other commentators might agree, is that uh, Leah wasn't much to look at, whereas her sister outshone her in every category of beauty, beauty or physical appearance. So we have this information that's given to us before Jacob can give his answer. He's got two daughters. One is a 10, the other less than. And so then we read in verse 18, what we read in verse 18 makes sense. Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. Naturally, Jacob is drawn to this outward beauty of Rachel, right? He, he sees this woman, he sees her form and her appearance, and he is immediately drawn to her such that he loves her. Now, when we read that, I, you know, we don't want to read into things. We don't know the depth of that love. Is it purely physical that, that he, he simply sees her and he's, he's immediately drawn to her and attracted to her? Is there a deep a, a, a connection that's been made over this month where he's drawn not only by her beauty, but by her personality and her brains and her artistic abilities? I don't know. But what we do know from the text is that Jacob is ready to prove his love for this woman by offering up his service to Laban for seven years. Seven years. Jacob says, I will serve you in your home for seven years in exchange for your daughter's hand in marriage. Now, now keep in mind who we're dealing with here and what we've seen of the patriarchs so far. Abraham, as far as we know, was never a servant in anyone's home. Abraham, as far as we know, after going down to Egypt and being brought out, was just was independently wealthy. He had servants in his home. So wealthy, so powerful that he could raise up an army of 318 men to go and fight kings. 
Isaac, what we see in the scriptures is that Isaac was richer than his father. Isaac sowed and in the same year reaped a hundredfold. Isaac, his, the wealth of Isaac was probably greater by, by magnitude than that of his father. Neither one of these men ever recorded as being servants in a home laboring for wages. But here's Jacob, a patriarch, who received the, the Abrahamic covenantal blessings, who's, who's willing to, to continue being, right? He's already really been serving in the home for a month, and he's ready to continue being a servant within this home for another seven years in order to win Rachel's hand. Now Laban's response really does give us kind of a, a, a glimpse into his character, right? So while it was customary in that time, uh, to receive a bride price in order to secure the hand of a wife, right? So like, we'll go back to Genesis 24, Abraham's servant goes with gold and jewelry and riches. And what does he do when he sees Rebecca? He puts bracelets on her arms. He puts a ring in her nose. He gives her gifts and gives her family gifts in order to secure Rachel or Rebecca as Isaac's wife. Uh, while that was customary, what was not customary in that time was treating your daughter as if she was compensation, was, was almost like using your daughter as a bartering tool. I want to get some good labor out of this guy. I want to get some good work out of this guy. So yeah, I'll give you my daughter in exchange for work. Now, again, I'm not trying to read into the text here, but Laban probably is, obvious, is probably aware of Jacob's affection for his daughter. He's probably aware of his affection for his daughter so that the question, going back to verse 15, is a loaded question. Because again, Jacob doesn't have a lot of options. It's not like he can write a letter back home to mom and dad and say, hey, listen, I found the girl I'm after. All I need is some gold rings, some gold jewelry, and a little bit of cash, and we can make this happen. He can't send that letter back home. He's been cast out. His brother wants to kill him. That relationship's been cut off. So he has nothing. So Laban, again, knows that he's got this guy where he wants him. And so the question of verse 15, I think, is a loaded question waiting for the answer of verse 18, which is, I'll serve you for your daughter's hand. And, of course, Laban says, all right. He treats his daughter as a commodity. He treats his daughter as compensation and says, well, I'd rather give her to you than to anybody else. So, sure, you can work seven years and you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. Now, when we get to verse 20, verse 20 seems like something you should read on a Hallmark card on Valentine's Day, which, coincidentally, is a made-up holiday. It's not a real holiday. But if you look at verse 20, it says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Get the tissues out. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Seven years just melted away as if it was nothing because of how much he loved Rachel. I bet you he put that on a card and gave it to her on their wedding night. He was like, listen, I've been thinking about this for seven years. I want you to see how beautiful this is. So seven years just float by as nothing. Why? Because Jacob has his mind set on what's ahead, right? Remember, beauty and form and appearance and all he can think about is the future. All he can think about is the wedding night. All he can think about is a consummation of this marriage such that the work just dissipates. It seems like nothing to him. So the future hope, this, this, this future joy, this future reality has a drastic impact, drastic impact on the way he lives his day-to-day -day life, on the way he approaches his day-to-day -day labor, on the way he approaches his day-to-day -day actions. Now, I think in that, in that, there's, there's an exhortation to us in that. Now, I'm not trying a one-to-one -one connection between Jacob and Jesus in this regard, but we do read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, 
that of Christ Jesus, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And that, that message of Christ, having his focus set on the joy that is set before him, which is his resurrection, his ascension, his, his, uh, his enthronement at the right hand of the Father, and his, his accomplished work of salvation, causes him, or allows him, or frees him uh, uh, to, dis- to, to see the cross, to despise the shame, to care nothing of the shame that will come with the cross, to care nothing of, of, of the difficulty of the cross, but to set his mind on the joy that was set before him. And that statement in Hebrews 12 comes within the context of exhorting a church to not give in to this temptation to set aside the call of Christ because of the, the difficulty of persecution. Right? The whole message of Hebrews is don't give up. Set your eyes on Christ and don't give up. Allow the joy that's set before you, which is Christ himself, have a drastic impact on how you live your life right now. And so while it's easy to look at verse 20 and kind of write Jacob off as this kind of uh, hopeless romantic, I think there is an exhortation for us. That there is a great joy set before us. There is a great marriage to come where the bridegroom will come and he will take his bride to be with him. And if our minds are set on the fullness of the joy that is to come in that, it can have a great impact on how you and I live our lives today. No doubt the seven years of labor was not seven years of bliss. Working a flock is hard work. And yet Jacob saw that work as nothing in comparison to the joy of Rachel. Our lives are often marked by difficulty. They're often marked by struggle. They're often marked by hardship to varying degrees. Some of it far more terrifying and pressing than others. And so maintaining a proper perspective in our life frees us to live with joy in the midst of all the hardships that God calls us to endure. Setting our eyes on the joy that is before us frees us to live as those seven years were nothing. And so the labor just passed away into time because my eyes are set on what is to come. So eventually those seven years do come to a close. And in verse 21, Jacob demands his wife. As we read the scriptures, it's, again, it's always telling what is said and what is not said. In verse 21, it is Jacob who initiates with Laban the fact that his time of service has come to an end. In fact, Jacob demands, give me my wife that I may go into her. Now, no doubt, Laban knew that the seven years was done. Laban knew that the time was over, but he takes no initiative to give the wife and to organize the feast and prepare the wedding and to do all that work. It takes Jacob to stand up and demand his wife. Again, we get hints to the character and to the nature of Laban and what he is really after in the midst of this narrative. In fact, we will see later on, as Jacob prepares to flee Laban, that Laban does not treat his daughters with kindness or generosity, but rather treats them as property. And so he has no intention of getting, giving up what is his until he is pressed and pushed to do so. So Laban responds in verse 22, and he gathers everybody together, and he has a big wedding feast. There's a giant wedding feast, and the consummation, I shouldn't say that's a choice word, but the end of this wedding feast is the bride being given to the husband, and the husband and wife going in to a tent to consummate the marriage. What we read here is that when the time came to do that, in verse 22, that Laban did not show up with Rachel, but rather he showed up with Leah. And Jacob goes in to Leah. Now, as we read this, uh, <laughs> as we read this, um, 
we, we no doubt kind of question, like, like how is this possible? Right? How, how was, like, I, I was thinking of my own wedding, right? Like, if my father-in-law was trying to pull a fast one on me, I think I would have figured it out. First off, Andy doesn't have any sisters, so I'd be like, why am I marrying a six-foot-five man? Um, but, you know, there would be a point in that wedding where I would go, you know what, hey, uh, you're not the one I asked to marry me. You're a different woman. Well, that's because we all know that Eastern weddings in the ancient Near East are not much like Western weddings in modern West, right? These were uh, oftentimes week-long affairs. They were parties, large, large celebrations, and there was eating and there was drinking. And so uh, it, it seems rather interesting, eerily similar, that Laban waits till a point in time when Jacob's senses are most likely impaired, not only by feasting and celebrating, by the, but, but, but also by the fact that it's nighttime to make this switch and to deceive Jacob. Right? We, we, we can't, we can't, we can't, and you know this, we can't read this without thinking about how he took advantage of his father's impaired senses to make a switch and deceive his father. And so Laban does the very same thing. And then we have this shocking verse 25. Right? Verse 25, as we come to verse 25, the shock of this verse is meant to be understood in direct connection to what we read in verse 20. Right? Verse 20, seven years seemed as nothing because what's before me is Rachel, her beauty, her 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 body, like it's it's there and it's I'm, I'm gonna labor for it, I'm gonna work for it. And then verse 25, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. The seven years of labor did not end in Rachel. It did not end in this promise fulfillment. It did not end in her beauty and her form and her appearance. It ended in Leah. (laughs) So what he thought was a few days is undone in just a moment as he rouses himself from his sleep, looks over to his left, and realizes this is not the right woman. This is not the you, the female sheep. This is the wild ox with the dull eyes. And of course, Jacob rouses himself, goes to Laban, and he says, why, why have you deceived me like this? Of course, we who know the larger narrative, we would look at this, and in today's language, we would say, that's the pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? You who deceived, you who usurped, you who took advantage of others to get what you wanted, now you are the recipient of deception. Now you are the one who has been usurped. Now you are the one who has been taken advantage of. And again, we we can't help but think that Laban had this plan from the very beginning. Because he gives this excuse here, right? He says, why did you do this? And Laban says, well, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now, you can read commentators and they'll say different things. Some people will say, well, if it was really the custom, then he would have said it at the front end, so it's probably not truly the custom. I tend to think it really is the custom. I think it is a custom. Laban knew it was a custom, and he didn't say it because he knew Jacob wouldn't work seven years for Leah. He knew that he wouldn't put in the effort. He wouldn't put in the work to take his firstborn daughter because he's had trouble marrying her to begin with. And so he saw a ripe opportunity to marry off a daughter that he was incapable of marrying off. And so he didn't tell Jacob about this custom so that he could take advantage of him. And we have to think how rather hilarious it is. Hilarious maybe isn't the right word. 
but how appropriate it, it is for Jacob, who deceived in order to usurp a known custom. Right? Jacob knew that the older is blessed before the younger, but he deceived in order to undo a known custom, is now deceived in order to maintain a less than well-known one. Right? He labored to usurp a custom. He knew. He knew what he was doing, and now he is deceived in order to maintain a custom that is less than well-known. And so Jacob is rightly upset. He's been tricked. He's been deceived. He's been usurped. And Laban takes advantage yet again. Takes advantage yet again. He says, listen, fulfill the week to Leah, and I'll give you Rachel as well. Again, I'll give you Rachel as compensation. I'll barter with you, Jacob, over my daughter. I'll give you Rachel for another seven years of labor. And what's Jacob going to say at this point? No, I'll take my Leah and go home. No. And so he agrees to it. He fulfills the week to Leah, and then he has Rachel and another seven years of labor. So Laban has now gotten 14 years and one month of labor out of this guy for two daughters. I don't know what the going rate for daughters is right now, but that seems like a pretty good deal. And so Jacob takes Rachel, takes her in. He goes into her. She becomes his wife. And then in verse 30, we read something that, that honestly, one, shouldn't surprise us, but two, should continue to be so depressing. Jacob went into Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So again, we have this issue of family discord and strife. And it's really setting up for us what's about to come as we have these two women battling for children and for affection and attention from one man, Jacob. And so this, this kind of story, this, this um, thread, if you will, of discord and strife within the family continues yet again. And it will continue to continue as we move through the narrative. So as we look at this, the question is, and the question I was asking myself all week is, what is the bridge between this text and us today, for all you John Stott fans out there? Well, I think one thing that this text does for us, as I said earlier, is that this gives us opportunity to read earlier texts with greater clarity and greater understanding. If we go back to Jacob's dealings with his family that Arnie read from Genesis chapter 25 this morning where he takes his brother's birthright and then later where he takes his brother's blessing, uh, the scriptures don't in that moment comment on the appropriateness or lack thereof of Jacob's actions. They don't condemn them and they don't approve them. They're kind of ambiguous to them. Now we are free to draw our own conclusions concerning Jacob and his actions, but there are conclusions that are not necessarily supported directly by the text. And so as we've worked through this Jacob narrative, especially up to the midpoint here of Genesis 29, we could easily come to the conclusion that Jacob is under no consequences whatsoever for his actions. Yes, he's been kicked out of home, but he's been kicked out with the birthright. He's been kicked out with the blessing, and he's about to get the girl, right? I mean, like everything seems to be moving in the right direction for him. And remember, remember what we know about patriarchs' wives. What do we know about the patriarchs' wives? They're all so beautiful that, guy, that, that, that the guys are worried they're going to die, right? Abraham's like, I can't tell them they're my wife. They'll kill me. And Isaac's like, I can't tell them they're my wife. They'll kill me. So Jacob's like, hey, I got to follow family. I got to do what the family does, right? So it seems like everything is going great for him. 
He hasn't really had, in fact, he also has the Abrahamic covenant blessings spoken over him in this miraculous vision that he has in the wilderness. And so we might be standing here going, how does this happen? How, how does this work out? How is this resolved? This doesn't seem right. And then we move through this story and its proximity to the events of Genesis 25 contextually and the striking similarities that we see here, right? The striking similarities that we see here with Jacob and his father Isaac and the deception of Jacob over Isaac and the deception of Jacob mean that all of this is serving as a commentary on his actions. It's serving as a commentary on the actions of Jacob to tell us that what Jacob did, what he did in deceiving his brother and deceiving his father was sinful. It, it, it was wrong. Uh, one commentator says the overreacher of Esau was overreached himself and sin was punished by sin. I mean, in kind of like colloquial language, we could say that Jacob is getting his comeuppance. He's, he's getting what he deserved. The usurper is being usurped. The deceiver is being deceived. The sinner is being sinned against. As we, remind, as we read this, I think it reminds us that, that God, God is just and that he sees the actions of men and he responds appropriately. God is just and he sees the actions of men and he responds appropriately and not even the elect escape divine justice. So if we think about the first statement for just a moment, God is just and he sees the action of mankind and responds. This is an important thing for us to remember. This is an important thing for us to hold close and to remember because the truth of the matter is we don't always see this with our eyes. We don't always see God's justice measured out upon the wickedness of mankind with our own eyes. I mean, this is, this is the whole entire thrust of, of one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73, right? This is the whole thrust of Psalm 73 is that the psalmist is, is in inner turmoil because he's looking at the wicked and he's seeing the wicked su succeed and he has not seen justice come. He's not seen justice come on the wicked who spurn God, who reject him, who curse him to his face. He says, why, why? They, they increase in riches. They're at ease. They, they, this is the wicked. They strut through the earth. Their tongue speaks things against heaven. And the psalmist doesn't see the justice. And so there's this apparent lack of justice for the wicked. But what we are reminded of in this moment as God exercises, I would say, divine justice and consequences and recompense upon Jacob for his actions, we are reminded <coughs> that God is just and he sees the actions of mankind. And he acts appropriately. And even more so, he has fixed a day, the scriptures say, when he will judge the earth in righteousness. He has fixed a day when he will judge the whole earth in righteousness. When he will exercise his justice fully and finally upon the wicked and those who have spurned him. And this is important for us to remember. It's important for us to hold closely as we walk through this world where justice often doesn't come. And it's a great reminder to us that it's not our job to bring justice about. It's not our job to exercise justice upon the wicked. It's God's job, and he has promised, I will do it. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So it frees us just to rest in him, to not be undone by what we see, to not be frustrated by what we see, to not be uh, uh, crushed by what we see, but to know that we can trust ourselves to a God who acts justly and will judge the world in justice. And I would also argue that it frees us 
It frees us ultimately because of Christ. It frees us to interact with the world in a new way. I mean, raise your hand if you don't want justice. It's a trick question. I was going to see who did it. None of you did. Very good. Very, very good. I was hoping to preach so long that you just become weary and be like, oh, that's me. Oh, no, it's not me, Dan. Uh, we all want justice. We long for it. The scriptures sing about it. They proclaim it. They, they desire it. But, but what do we see in Christ? What do we see in Jesus? Well, the, the scriptures say that all God's promises are yes and amen in him. Uh, and so what do we see in Christ? We, we see the fullness of God's justice poured out on Christ. So that he might, what does what Paul say in Romans? So that he might, that's God, might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus, Christ is our propitiation, right? So Christ is a wrath-removing sacrifice so that God can declare, I am indeed just. I punish wickedness, and I make it known by pouring out my wrath upon my Son. And not only does it declare that I am just, says God, it also declares that I am the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So because God is just, and because he's poured out his justice on his son, because he's poured his wrath into his son, we now who are in Christ are free, I would argue, to interact with the world in a new way. Yes, we long for justice, but it's not our place to bring about that justice. It's our place to proclaim a gospel message that draws people to Christ so that they might they might know what it is to be justified in Christ Jesus, set free from their sin and the coming punishment for their sin. Because that day that's fixed when God's going to judge the world in righteousness, all those who are not in Christ will drink down to the dregs the full cup of the Father's wrath against their sin. And we are sent as heralds. We are sent as messengers. We are sent as ambassadors. We are sent as God's mouthpiece crying out to the world, be reconciled to God. Know that he has satisfied his justice in his son, Jesus Christ, and come to him and be set free. Be forgiven. Be redeemed. So God is just. He sees the actions of men, and he acts appropriately. Nothing escapes the eyes of our Lord. Not even the actions of the elect. Even the elect, or not even the elect, can escape divine justice, or we could say recompense, or we could say chastisement, or we could say consequences. You can insert a word there. right? There's no doubt that Jacob is called, he's elect, he's a recipient of covenant promises, but this does not mean that he is free from the consequences of his sin. He is not free from divine discipline and judgment. Sin certainly has consequences, and we see this throughout Scripture. I mean, at times we struggle with David, who is called a man after God's own heart, and yet we see what he has done. We see the sins of David, and we see David take upon himself the consequences of his sins. He doesn't escape them. God doesn't give him a pass. He takes those consequences upon himself. Jacob sins, and he takes those consequences upon himself. He doesn't get a pass. But the aim or the end goal of the consequences of sin differ depending on one's relationship to Christ. To the believer, divine judgment in this life is meant to refine and to sanctify us. 
Yes, we sin, and yes, we suffer the consequences of our sin, but in the hands of the Lord, it is discipline meant to chastise us, to change us, to call us to himself, to sanctify us, to transform us into the image of his son. To the unbeliever, divine judgment in this life is meant to lead to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. God declares to the prophet Ezekiel, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. And so even we who love Christ, who follow Christ, who desire Christ, who call, call Christ Lord, we suffer the consequences of our sins, but the consequences of those sins is meant to lead us to sanctification. God chastising us. And so we see Jacob, through this, become a different man. He exits Padan Aram, a different man than he came in to Padan Aram. Because God is at work in his life. And that ultimately is one of the greatest things we see in this text altogether, that we see in this narrative altogether, is that even the foolishness of Abraham, the foolishness of Isaac, who offered up their wives, the foolishness of Jacob, who usurps and deceives, cannot undo the purposes and plans of God. Mankind's stupidity can't stop God. He's going to work through Jacob. He's going to work through his offspring. He is going to accomplish his purposes and his plans. He is going to bring Christ. And Jacob's foolishness is sinfulness. David's foolishness, his sinfulness. Abraham's foolishness, his sinfulness. Isaac's foolishness, his sinfulness. None of this can stop the purposes and the plans of God. And so again and again and again as we interact with this narrative, we are called to rest and to trust and to lean into the Lord who is at work in his world for his, for his pleasure, for his glory, and for our good. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you that you are active, you are at work, you are bringing about your purposes and your plans, Lord. We thank you, Father, above all things, that your justice, the, the fullness thereof, was, was poured out upon Christ who is a propitiation for our sins. He was put forward in faith so that, Lord, through faith in him, we can be redeemed, we can be made just. And so, Lord, make us uh, heralds of that message, declaring that to the ends of the earth, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let us go this week rejoicing in the goodness, the justice, and the righteousness of our God. Now raise your hands in song with me as we go into this new week with the Lord's blessing.